0: Welcome to the Language Neuroscience Podcast, a podcast about the scientific study of language in the brain. I'm Stephen Wilson, and I'm a neuroscientist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. In my lab, the Language Neuroscience Lab, our research focuses on neuroplasticity in recovery from post stroke aphasia. In this podcast, I'm going to talk with leading and up and coming researchers about their work and ideas. This podcast is geared to an audience of scientists and future scientists who are interested in the neural substrates of language from students to postdocs to faculty. We have many avenues of scientific communication, papers, of course, conferences, talks, maybe even Twitter. This is an experiment to see whether podcasts might be another medium that we can use for scientific communication. This is episode one, recorded on the 22nd of January, 2021. My inaugural guest is an outstanding researcher, Ev Fedorenko. Ev is an associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at MIT, I want to keep this show informal and not do the standard guest intros where you list all the awards and achievements. Instead, I'll just say this. Eve is, in my opinion, doing some of the most innovative and exciting work in our field. Her work addresses fundamental questions about the neural architecture of language and its relation to other cognitive processes. She is incredibly productive with numerous lines of work, any one of which would be more than enough for most people. So today, we're only going to talk about just a subset of her work. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Ev. How are you?
1: I'm good, Stephen. How are you?
0: I'm good. So just to kind of set the scene for um, our listeners, um, I'm sitting in my front room in Nashville, Tennessee. It's sunny and cold, about month 10, month 11 of lockdown. There might be kids bursting in at any moment. And my dog might decide to join us. Um, how about you? Where are you at right now?
1: Very similar. Um on all the latter parts, um, except in Boston. It's also pretty cold and sunny, but yeah, dogs and kids may also join in at some points.
0: <laughs> so thank you very much for um, joining me for this podcast. You. you you were certainly one of the first people that I thought of. And I thought that I would get things started by kind of asking you how you came to be whatever it is you call yourself. So what what would you call yourself, like, if somebody asked you, like...
1: I generally say a neuroscientist or cognitive neuroscientist. Um,
0: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So so not many people sort of – you don't usually grow up, you know, as a six-year-old being like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a cognitive neuroscientist. So can you kind of tell me, like, how did that come about for you? Like, did you have any childhood interests that sort of pointed to this um, in retrospect, or how did it come about for you?
1: Yeah, so um, that's a good question. I mean, so I always um, liked – language like I always found myself very attuned to language um, I loved doing these little exercises that I don't know if you guys do in the U.S. and schools where you like take a sentence apart and figure out which word plays different roles and all that stuff and then um, I started learning foreign languages um, so I was learning um, uh, English and French um, and then a little bit later Polish um, I have Polish ancestors so I was uh, working on that as a potential backup plan for escaping um, <laughs> the crazy country I was growing up in, which was um, Soviet Union, and uh, uh, and then I was started learning Spanish as well um, and German, and so I was learning a bunch of languages, and I found myself really um, excited about seeing some parallels, some different solutions that languages seem to have for figure, you know, putting words together into complex meanings, um, and then at some point after kind of. Gain, gaining enough familiarity with um, a few of these languages, um, I thought that I had a really great idea. And I still think it's actually worthwhile for someone to pursue is I thought I would start um, like a big international training program to teach kids foreign languages in families and language families. So instead of learning French, we would teach them all the romance languages in parallel due to huge overlap in both structure. And, and so so that was my plan. I thought maybe I'll just start a company. And I knew that if I were to end up in a, some Western world, it would be super popular because, you know, these days many parents are obsessed with making their kids, um, you know, as versatile as possible and all that,
0: uh-huh. so that
1: was my plan. And I didn't really know about cognitive science as a or cognitive neuroscience as a field. And then when I came to college, so I got a um, uh, full scholarship to come to Harvard. That was in 98. Um, I took a class with Alfonso Caramazzo. And um, I just couldn't believe that people do that for a living. Like they just study language and how it works. And then I just knew I was going to do that.
0: So was was it? Alfonso Karamazza, the first person that you met in this field who sort of studies like the psychology or the neuroscience of language?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had prior to that, I had taken a couple of linguistics classes and I actually really liked uh, historical linguistics with um, Jay Jesinoff, um, who I think is still teaching there. Um, and that was really fun. But that seemed like more kind of like... Um, um, I don't want to say a hobby, because it kind of makes it like, I just didn't see myself doing that as a kind of um, full-time job, Um, but I really enjoyed this. And then I think uh, Alfonso's class was the first kind of exposure to like actually thinking about the psychological, computational, and neural mechanisms that give rise to this ability that we have. Um, And yeah, and then I ended up in his lab as an undergrad and he was my academic grandfather.
0: Oh, that's great. What a a way to start. It's kind of going to be hard to live up to after that, isn't it?
1: (laughs) That's very true. And
0: what did you work on when you were an undergrad in his lab?
1: Well, I worked on lexical access, (laughs) uh, and that was was cool and fun. Um, But ultimately, I just knew that I wanted to um, scale it up because, of course, we don't... um, speak in isolated sentences. And I was worrying about the paradigms that were in use at the time, which was all kind of you know, picture naming style tasks. Um, I was worried about scaling up what we learned from those to kind of more naturalistic conversation when we plan things in much larger chunks. So even for production, I was not sure how far that will ultimately um, um, scale up. And so I started um, looking into classes um, that dealt with sentence level understanding and production. And so I took a class with Ted Gibson at MIT as an undergrad, you can cross-register between MIT and Harvard. Uh, And I was like, that was really quite a revelation. I just thought that that was just the coolest thing. Those were the coolest questions. And so then for grad school, I applied mostly to labs that um, dealt with um, um, sentence level understanding, um, mostly some production, but mostly understanding and,
0: yeah, and that's that's really continued to be your focus, right? I mean, I'd say that you definitely like have, you know, made syntax your primary domain of interest, as far as I can tell,
1: and compositional semantics.
0: Is there really any difference?
1: <laughs> uh, some would say yes. Um, I think they're very strongly interconnected, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah.
0: So you went to MIT, um, Brain Cognitive Sciences, and you worked with ted and with nancy canwisher right
1: that's right yeah.
0: so how did you kind of put together that um that mentoring team
1: well, is that is that, a, is that
0: a fair way to kind of oh yeah yeah i mean it? It's,
1: uh, <laughs> it was um you know it was love uh <laughs> so i fell in love with ted and we started a relationship and that's just how things go sometimes and people can make all sorts of rules about what's allowed and not allowed but love transcends all rules and things I just go.
0: yeah I couldn't agree more strongly yeah. you to do what you gotta do
1: <laughs> exactly and so so then I needed a solution and <laughs> I knew that Ted couldn't advise me anymore and so with Ted in the first like two or three years of my um grad program I, I had gotten interested in um uh the specificity of representations and computations that support language. And I did a little bit of work on uh, working memory systems that may or may not be shared between language and other things. And then somehow in parallel, I had an interest in um, uh, in music. Um, and with Josh McDermott, who was a grad student um, at the time, senior to me, and with Nancy Kamensher, we started um, playing a little bit, uh, looking at neural responses to music structure. And we were getting some interesting piloty results um, but they were not you know they were not kind of knock your socks off strong responses and we are pretty looking at pretty subtle manipulations but um, then in parallel um, I got involved with Ted and then um, uh, I you know I came to Nancy and I said <laughs> I, need a, I need a new advisor and um, she was um, she she was very funny about it in the Nancy kind of way she said this is this is not good, Elf. This is not good. What's going to happen if you if things don't work out? It's going to be really really hard. Like it's a hard um, it's a hard path. And she was right. There are a lot of challenges um, later on in terms of um, dealing with the two body problem. But but she was also, of course, very supportive. And you know, she said she'd be delighted to work with me. And so then she and I at some point ran um, some language conditions as a control for music. And of course, we got beautifully strong responses in every individual we tried and. And I initially didn't, I was hesitant to go in the brain and language field because um, it seemed a little bit like an old boys club, perhaps due to the sociology of the field, having it start out in the clinic um, where a lot of people who got access to uh, scanners were uh, doctors, clinicians, not always trained in all the right ways. And there seemed like there was a lot of quote unquote foundational stuff that was not very Um, that was not done in the most rigorous of ways that was hard to build on. Um, And so I knew it wasn't going to be an easy path if, you know, we were to start um, going in that direction. But ultimately the questions about the relationship between language and non-linguistic cognition and the fact that um, um, we were just getting such beautiful, strong signals that seemed like they were begging to be investigated further, just kind of, won me over and then um I guess I started doing that around uh 2007 ish maybe um or so yeah and I guess I've been doing that ever since
0: yeah okay great so the first paper of yours that I read was um your 2010 paper in journal of neurophysiology um and obviously that describes a a line of work that you must have been working on for several years prior to that um where you know, the the central insight was um, that it would be better to look at um, language regions in terms of individual functional regions of interest uh, rather than the group analyses that were um, dominant at the time and still are to a large extent. Um, so, can you tell us about um, how that work came to be? Like, how did you how did you kind of um, mm-hmm narrow in on that approach in in your work at that time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so that was a big advantage of growing up in a vision lab. Nancy's lab was a vision lab. And there were um, two advantages actually. Uh, One was that the methods in the field of vision research I think are just um, more advanced further along. Um, And I think there's interesting reasons for why that may be the case. I think the animal physiology grounding may be a big part of that. But also, it was really helpful to train with somebody who didn't come with priors from the field of brain and language. So so I read the literature that was around at the time. I was familiar with things that people have done. But Nancy and I kind of took this approach, like, okay, we'll we'll know what people have done. But let's just imagine that, you know, we got access to this cool machine that can see inside the brain. How would we figure this out from the ground up? Let's try to build up an enterprise, like how we would, you know pretending like the context above us didn't exist and then we'll try to integrate it with other stuff um, later just you know and that was it would have been very hard to do this with any language researcher because of course you come in with you know huge theoretical biases huge huge methodological biases and so on and so forth anyway so you know nancy was um you know somebody who had pioneered these kinds of approaches for studying vision and um When you talk to her about this, she'll often say, I didn't pioneer it. Like, that's just how people did things. You know, that was just what you would do. Well, how would you do anything else? Like, of course, you want to find these effects in individual participants. That's what you do with monkeys. That's what you in physiology work. And uh, anyway, and so um, naturally, we just, um, you know, try to extend this to language. And it took a little while of fiddling with different kinds of contrasts, auditory and visual. I was targeting higher level um, linguistic representation. So I knew that it would have to be something that doesn't really care about whether you're reading language or listening to it. At that point, it should converge. And so I'm playing around with a few contrasts and initially... Um, uh, the approach that we took was trying to break apart the processing of word meanings and the compositional um, structure and meaning building, and my priors led me to think that we would find a subset of re- subset of you know brain regions, so maybe a network that responds more strongly to word meanings and another subset that responds more strongly to structure. So the reason the original experiments had those four conditions in there, sentences, word lists, Jabberwocky sentences structured but meaningless and scrambled um, Jabberwocky non-word lists, um, was because I was thinking that that would be kind of a two-way localizer. It will find us both subsets. And um, and after you know a few years looking for that dissociation, I didn't see it, and so then I said, okay, we'll just use the broader contrast to find that superset. Um, and um, it seems like the other contrasts give you the very same sets of regions, just are a little bit weaker. Um, and so that was how we chose um, um, the contrast. And then, like I said, we've generalized it to all sorts of to other modalities, to other languages, and the materials don't really matter. What you do in terms of a task don't really matter. And in fact, um, Recent work from uh, Randy Buckner's group by Rod Braga and others shows that um, with enough resting state data within a person, the network that emerges from just looking at um, uh, intrinsic fluctuations, maps beautifully under on the, on the kinds of contrasts we've been using, which um, I find really reassuring. And um, you know, I, to me suggest strongly that it's really a natural kind and our localizer is just one way to quickly pull out that subset of the brain for studying.
0: Yeah that's really cool. I mean and and it would have a lot of if you could identify language areas from resting state that would be very clinically useful because it would make it a lot easier mm-hmm. to do pre-surgical mapping. Indeed. Um, but anyway, um you know, so Nancy was very well known at that time for the fusiform face area, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'll try and kind of put it in context and you can just tell me if I if I mm-hmm. misstate anything. Um but essentially like her her general approach was if you want to understand the function of an area, first you identify with a functional localizer, and in this case she would use I think faces versus scrambled faces, but it didn't
1: uh, versus objects.
0: Okay, faces versus objects, mm-hmm. um, and then you, she would identify in every individual this region in sort of occipitotemporal cortex in the fusiform gyrus specifically um, that would respond selectively to faces. And then the research program was basically first to identify that in each individual, wherever it may be. And then you look at how it responds to different manipulations of faces or how it responds to different classes of visual stimuli and so on. Um, So that was the, that was the approach that you brought over and applied in the language domain.
1: That's exactly right. So I think this, um, the thing that you highlighted, um, the fact that um, you're not going to answer a question about the underlying computations of a brain region in a single study, you're bound to need multiple hypothesis testing, gradually kind of constraining the space of possibilities for what it is that this region could be doing, so that it cares about you know x, y, and z, but doesn't respond to you know. Um, these other manipulations and so on. Uh, And that's the cornerstone of um, robust and replicable science because different labs can be working on different questions, but if they use the same kind of anchor, the same way of finding the quote-unquote same bit in the brain that they're studying, then we can relate findings straightforwardly to each others and um, ask different questions and have some convergence of um, um, results from, you know, multiple... Approaches, multiple theoretical frameworks, whatever you know, characterizes different labs. Uh-huh. And the problem with doing that with the traditional approach, which um, you know, in case again, like people's backgrounds are different, so the standard approach is just to take some manipulation, scan a bunch of people, align those activation maps in the common space, and then assume that now in each point in that template space you have functional correspondence across people. The problem with relating findings to each other in that approach is the following. So the output you get from such an analysis is a set of activation peaks. You'll say, okay, I found syntax sensitivity and X, Y, Z coordinates, such and such, X, Y, Z coordinates, such and such. To interpret these things, people generally resort to anatomy. So say, okay, this coordinate falls within the inferior frontal gyrus. Um, sometimes they'll use the Broadman map estimates of where um, site architectonic boundaries would lie, which of course is, you know, uh, incredibly crude. Those maps maps are hugely variable across people. But anyway, so people will say, I found it in BA44, say. And then the way that they would interpret this is by looking at other studies that have found activation in quote unquote BA44. And they say, oh, you know, there was a study that found um, uh, sensitivity to working memory in BA44. And I found sensitivity to syntax in BA44. Therefore, syntax must draw on working memory. And those inferences are prevalent. Like if you read the literature from, you know, the 90s, 2000s, and then when some papers up to today, people make such inferences. And I just think that's um, too many degrees of freedom and in interpretation. is just ultimately not that meaningful necessarily, because um, those are all big chunks of cortex. They're highly heterogeneous. Yeah, so basically um, you would find papers that, find two nearby peaks across different studies and they have some prior to think that those functions are related and they'll say oh look those two peaks are nearby it's probably you know the same function that's generating them and make some inference like that and then some other studies will find similarly spaced peaks and they will have a different prior that those are distinct functions and they'll say oh look these are nearby but not exactly in the same spot therefore maybe there's different functions nearby and I just didn't want to build science and making these kinds of inferences. And so I wanted to make sure that from one individual to the next, from one study to the next, from one continent to the next, to the extent that the approach um, gets adopted by others, we're talking about the same regions. And Mm -hmm. um, that's the main kind of conceptual advantage of the approach. And of course the technical approach, the technical advantages is you get, you gain huge amounts of sensitivity. You have vastly more power. And you're much better able to resolve between nearby distinct peaks because uh, aligning maps in the common space and smoothing them just blurs the hell out of activations. And then you potentially lose um, the magical resolution we have, which is you know limited, but still really quite good. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. so I just want to see if I can summarize my understanding of your approach. And, and, and again, you can just correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But it involves each individual. This um, does a language condition and a control condition, and it like you said, it doesn't matter exactly what they are. um, But basically, it's kind of syntactically structured real language versus, um, I think, words in like word lists, no pseudo pseudo word lists. Uh Okay, and then you find then you kind of have like a, a number of pre specified regions of interest that are fairly large. Like say, for instance. IFG pars opercularis, IFG pars triangularis, mm-hmm. posterior temporal. I don't know exactly what they are. It's not mm-hmm. critical for our discussion. Um, and for each individual, you find the subset of voxels within that larger region of interest that are responsive to the language versus non-language contrast. And then you define that as that individual's IFG pars opercularis language region, right? Yeah. And And when you compare across individuals, you're then comparing... You know, for each individual, the subset of voxels within their pars opercularis that are responsive mm-hmm. to the language contrast is exactly. that all? That's
1: exactly right. Fair, exactly okay.
0: Right. And do you are you how satisfied are you with the uptake of your ideas in the field? Like, do you? I mean, obviously, your paper is well known and and highly cited. Um Do you feel like you've made the impact methodologically that you hoped to?
1: Um, I think so. I mean, um. It could be better, but I think the field is getting stronger. I think over the years I've had many labs um, get in touch and I've helped people adapt these tools um, for their needs. We developed a SPM um, toolbox, which makes these kinds of analyses really um, straightforward and just basically take a few minutes on top of whatever pre-processing and analysis is routinely done. Ultimately, like, I'd love for people to use our tools because I want people to do better science. Like I'm not after the most citations from my paper. Like I want to understand how language works. And I think if we work on this jointly using approaches that allow us to compare and build on each other's findings, that's great. <laughs> and some labs are doing this, and that makes me very happy. And I think there's now um, a lot of useful collaborative efforts going on um, that um, uh, build on this methodological foundation, Um, but you know, and ultimately if people want to keep doing things in a way that I think is vastly suboptimal. I mean, it's not my place to tell them how to do their work. If they think that the inferences they draw are satisfactory to them, you know, that's fine. <laughs> like, I'm not going to take those findings and use them because I just don't know how I just don't think they're ultimately interpretable. in, in <laughs> cases. But um, yeah, we only have one life. But, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think yeah. I'm a lot like you. I mean, I, I primarily believe mostly the things that we've done in our lab. <laughs> exactly. and, and I and mean, it you know, that, like that, right? there's <laughs> some I mean, there's definitely some other I mean, there's plenty of other people in the field whose work I By and large, believe, Um, but it's not. It's not the default. I'll put it that way. Um, So, okay. So, you know, like you 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 said earlier. So this, you know, the approach kind of was birthed in the field of vision, right? And so, in vision, we understand very well from you know primate um, neurophysiology. Um, that there are discrete visual areas. They have like well-defined borders where you have, for instance, things like, you know, changes in retinotopic orientation Mm -hmm. at the border from like V1 to V2 to wherever Mm -hmm. you're going to go after that. Um, So you've kind of got this discrete mosaic of visual regions that are the same in, in, in every individual. When you translate that into the language domain, I don't feel like we're quite there yet in being able to say that there is a distinct mosaic of language regions that are the same in an, every individual, do you agree that we're not there yet? Or
1: what do you mean uh, by the same in every individual? Maybe I'm not.
0: Well, okay. So you know, like every individual has a V1 mm-hmm. and a V2 um, and a V4 that have. You know, I'm talking here about like you know visual regions, yeah. obviously, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 and yeah. and they're and they're more or less anatomically. Um, you know, obviously like, you know, their the specific um, anatomical location with yeah. respect but to Jari and Salsa really. is going to yeah. differ a little bit, but they're going to be laid out pretty much the same. And more importantly, like kind of from your perspective, functionally they're the same, right? right. So, you know, V4 That's is going to have a similar function in every individual. Exactly. And, and we have a way of identifying those based on their function. Now, yeah. in language, um, uh, we're not at that level, right? I mean, like uh, we, right. So, you, so your approach sort of, it generates a set of language regions, um, but they're not functionally distinct in the way that the set of visual regions
1: could that's be generated right.
0: by a similar. So, so you know, what do you do with that? Like, what's the well, next step?
1: So, <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting question, right? I mean, so there's some reality out there that we're trying to understand. Now, importantly, we do know that the perceptual regions that support early stages of speech um speech perception, speech acoustic processing, and reading are totally distinct from these high level regions. There's no question about that. So they have different functional profiles and presumably they serve as the input regions to the higher level language regions. Similarly, on the production side, there's a set of regions that support articulation that are totally distinct from these higher level, what we call higher level language regions that um, do everything pre-sending the articulatory commands down to the motor premotor areas. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is whether there are meaningful functional distinctions within this frontotemporal network um, that we and many others and you and many others have been looking at. And I don't know. Like I said, I came in with a prior that there would be a clear separation between uh, syntax supporting regions and lexical meaning supporting regions. That just doesn't um, seem to be the right cut. Um, Now, whether there is... Other distinctions hiding in there, and we just haven't looked for them because again, we've brought in certain priors from certain theorizing and so on. Um, There may well be. um, And I think there's a host of approaches um, um, that are being developed, including um, with artificial neural networks that have gotten really good, which may help us in a perhaps data-driven way discover different features of language that may preferentially drive some parts of this network compared to others. Now, if such distinctions are meaningful distinctions are found and they're replicable, then we can ask questions like, okay, do these distinctions show up consistent with a consistent topography across people? Is it always, you know, chopped up in the same way, divided up in the same way or um, not? But but it's also worth saying that many people, you know, back from um, Marcel Messalam have been talking about... Complex functions like language, like mapping forms to meanings, uh-huh. there may not be a mosaic of little functionally distinct bits. It may well be this distributed network. We know it's highly interconnected. Um, so maybe the structure that exists there is highly redundant across these areas and is designed in this way to kind of be most protective of damage or whatnot. I mean, um, it's hard to say, but I'll certainly keep looking for structure within that network. That's not, you know, I don't think the door is closed on that. It's just some of the distinctions that had been argued for, I think are not the right cuts.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's so it's, it's just fascinating to me. Like, so, so you're kind of like, basically you're, at this point, you're, you're holding on to the null hypothesis that all of the language frontotemporal language regions are functionally equivalent
1: until somebody shows me convincingly otherwise mm-hmm.
0: yeah I mean <laughs> I I don't I don't share your intuition that that's that that null hypothesis will hold up but I you know I obviously the data other data yeah Um, and so this is kind of like just a you know kind of maybe a slightly silly philosophical thing but like you know you're at MIT um, you know, the birthplace of modularity and in a sense You know, there's aspects of your your work that are very modular. Like you've you know you've really focused on the distinction, like the sharp distinction between the language network and other cognitive networks. And hopefully, we can have time to talk about that more in a moment. But yet, then when it comes within the language system, you're basically arguing against modularity. Is that?
1: I'm a very strong empiricist, (laughs) sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm just a very strong empiricist. I came in with priors that there would be dissociations within that network. When I don't see them over and again across dozens of studies now, across different methodologies, um, you know, recently we're trying single cell recordings. Um, Like if you try so many different things and you just don't find it, ultimately I think, okay, based on the data so far, um, I just don't see strong evidence for functional dissociations. You know, it may be that, in a few months, we'll discover something that li- really clearly splits that system into, you know, either frontal and temporal components or, you know, anterior temporal, you know, some whatever split. And they'll be functionally really clearly different. Then I'll change my mind. I think that's a big uh-huh. part of what we should be able to do in science. If we learn otherwise, we don't just keep telling the same story. And I think that's also something that's held back, held back. Um our field in some ways, because I think some of the early generation scientists, earlier generation scientists have been trained in a way as like, you've made your name with that hypothesis, hold on to it, you know, uh, you know, through everything, <laughs> just keep arguing for that because that's what you'll be famous for. And I, that's yeah. just not how I was ever trained. Like I want no. the, I want the truth.
0: <laughs> no, me neither. I've yeah. been like, I've been like, I've been totally wrong about some things Yeah, and that, and that's, that's fine. It's the fun of science. <laughs> um, has anybody given you any grief about your kind of distributionalist bent that is not very traditionally MIT, or is it? Oh, like within MIT. I
1: mean, in the field, people are still very resistant to the notion that there is no little blob that just does syntax and nothing else. Like that still seems like um, it's, it's. People are coming around. Some are coming around. Some are not. But. Uh, no, at MIT, I think most people just want to figure out how it works. And if it works early, the day to tell you the story, you know, um, but, um, but in general, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been challenging. I don't know if we want to go there, but in general, it's, um, if you challenge old dogmas, it's um, tricky. And uh, if you're a woman doing so, it's trickier. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been just anecdotally, there have been many cases where earlier on in my career, um, we often uh, went and gave invited to talks together with Ted Gibson, my husband,
0: uh-huh. and
1: he would just be amazed at the tone that people take, like in some question periods. And he's like, nobody ever talks to me like that. And it and it took me a really long time to learn to walk this very fine line between being able to talk like calmly and confidently about your work. Uh, and being called a bitch because for a man a tall white guy to talk with confidence like oh he really knows what he's talking about this is awesome and if a woman takes very much the same tone it's like oh she's really bitchy and you know for a few years I really struggled with this I mean I don't want to say I almost lo- love the field over it but it was just really like I didn't want to do science with within that kind of an environment but yeah you know eventually it got better and um you know and hopefully i can mentor young women to be able to withstand that kind of stuff better
0: that's i mean that's just so hard to hear you know i mean i'm 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 really glad that you have found your way to like you know a way of presenting your work that is like like you said like clear confident and making no apologies like for having (laughs) having a position that is you know you're challenging you know some old ideas many of which are probably wrong and need to be challenged and,
1: and that's a, yeah it's like it seems like it should be okay and we should be able to debate and talk productively and not put each other down and yeah but i do think it's getting better i think the field is moving in good directions both with respect to treatment of women um also urms i mean i think that's a little behind but i do think there's positive changes so let's hope it all keeps moving in that way
0: yeah i noticed that you guys have that you guys are making like concrete steps towards increasing underrepresented minorities in, in your lab and creating opportunities for we're um, trying, yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. So after you, um, in that 2010 paper, where you kind of you know you laid out your methodological approach, um, after that you have this series of papers um, over the next few years where you describe um, what you call the multiple demand network, and then show how sharply it is distinct from the language network. Could you kind of talk about that series of papers and and those discoveries and you know, were were you surprised by them? Did you expect them by that point? Like how did that kind of line of work develop?
1: Yeah, so that was was a question that initially drew me to cognitive neuroscience methods and kind of convinced me to go into that area um, where I was deeply interested in how language relates to other things. And just when I started grad school, That was 2002, um, Hauser-Chomsky and Fitch paper came out in science, uh, you know, identifying recursion as maybe the key feature of language, making it unique uh, among other communication systems and hinting that perhaps it's the combinatorial capacity is so abstract that it would also support things like math and music and other human unique abilities and so on. And I thought that that idea was very interesting and of course there were also um, kind of a host of other claims, uh, some totally unrelated like from the mirror neuron literature, some somewhat related making parallels between language and music for example. And uh, it just seemed like a fundamental question like to what extent um, is the combinatorial machinery that language relies on shared with other capacities. And, um, and so that was, you know, the most straightforward way to do that was to identify these language responsive regions in individual people and then ask across a series of studies, do these regions work hard when you have to solve logic problems? Do you, do they work hard when you do math, when you um, solve a little programming task, when you think uh-huh. about other's thoughts and, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, again, at the time, when we were doing that, there were so many claims about the overlap in the frontal cortex between language and other things. I was kind of expecting that maybe in the temporal cortex we'll find language specificity, but maybe in the front, it will be much more multimodal and maybe there is really this abstract hierarchical processor. What a beautiful idea that, you know, maybe in humans specifically and supports language and other human specific abilities. And that just wasn't the case. And so, yeah, I was surprised. (laughs) Uh Um, I was surprised. and, um, And we kept, you know, running more and more conditions. And people always say when you try, you know, establishing specificity is tricky because people always say, well, you've tested these tasks, but maybe you could test this other one. And that's, again, you know, at some point you just have to, like, make, okay, if I test 10, 15 different tests, and none of them elicit responses, and they kind of have spanned all the main proposals that have been made about why language might share machinery with other things, then okay, I'm pretty convinced that at this point, I'm pretty convinced it's a network that at least in the adult brain is highly specialized for dealing with linguistic input. Um, developmentally, we don't know, um, because it hasn't been looked at carefully enough.
0: I mean, yeah, you must have a pretty strong prior there, though. But um, Oh. Again,
1: uh, well, I'm, I like my prior is that it develops with age. I think it starts out as a very general social processor. So that's the current working hypothesis. That what like- does. The language system. I do not think it's oh, there. Oh, right,
0: right, right. Yeah, there's that. Okay, that is that thing. Oh, yeah I heard you say that in a talk a few months ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um,
0: I... Yeah, no, that's very I interesting.
1: It doesn't make... Like, we don't know language when we're born. Right, And <laughs> right. I think what the system does is basically storing these four meaning mappings, and it takes time to acquire them and yeah. then store them. We use that system, and so...
0: Surely. Uh, yeah, but the, the the distinction between the language system and the, the multiple demand network, I think you... I'm sure you hypothesize is, is very discreet from the get-go.
1: Oh yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: So just to kind of back up and kind of for people that haven't read all those papers, so like I think the gist of it is, you know, that you identify the language regions in the way that we discussed already and then you look at how those regions respond to. And I think it's mostly focused around like difficult and easy versions of tasks, right? Is it always about that Difficulty manipulation? That's
1: one, so so that's that's with respect to the um, multiple demand system in particular. But then there's other studies looking at more social things. There's other studies looking at music where, you know, it's not demanding tasks that would drive the MD net, multiple demand network. Okay. Um, but it's showing that those things also don't seem to. Require, oh, okay. Yeah. But for the multiple demand system, it's mostly these goal-directed behaviors like working memory task, cognitive control task, logic puzzles, math problems, these kinds of things. Yeah,
0: and and is it mostly about the difficulty manipulation, or is or do you care like what it does relative to some baseline?
1: Uh, We always look at stuff relative to baseline. The difficulty manipulation comes into place because we want to make sure that it elicits the right responses somewhere. And -hmm. difficulty manipulations for those tasks are what's been used to identify regions that, say, care about working memory or are sensitive to cognitive control or are sensitive to math, um, you know, whatever demands. And so...
0: So you find that in language regions, you not only don't see a response relative to baseline for these sort of cognitively demanding tasks like arithmetic or working memory, but you also don't see an effective task difficulty either.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's. I would phrase it like in the backwards, I would say, not only do you not see a sensitivity to the difficulty, even mm-hmm. relative to like a low level baseline, you just see that these language regions are doing as much when you're solving a math problem as when there's a blank screen and you're doing nothing. Which right. to me, is okay, they're just not much engaged during math.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. I know I agree I would put it that way too. I I kind of think that like the difficulty manipulation to me is a a tighter contrast um whereas whenever you're comparing something to like a blank screen baseline I'm always just like well what what is that? <laughs> you know well, like, yeah. what is yeah. that condition? Right. Um, whereas right. The difficulty manipulation it's like kind of both ends of it are controlled so I like those mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Um okay. So So you've kept working on MD network over the years since then. Are you really interested in the MD network or is it just sort of like a control condition for you relative to the language network?
1: That's a great question. I mean, um, it's a network that historically um, supports um, cognitive capacities that have historically been very tightly linked to language. Um, And I still think that there may be some relationship um, between these two networks that we haven't uncovered. So what we know right now is that during typical language processing, that network just doesn't seem to be doing much. In fact, passively listening to language um, with no extraneous demands, elicits hugely strong responses in the language regions and you know, n- no response in the multiple demand network. Um, however, there may be some aspects of language, perhaps especially so in production and or it may be that um, there are conditions under which that kind of general problem solving um, capacity may be helpful for understanding language. Like some people have reported effects um, in the multiple demand regions for listening to speech under adverse conditions or listening to speech that has an accent where basically the perceptual information coming in is suboptimal in various ways. Uh And so um, whether these effects are, causal uh or just reflect okay i'm struggling here and it's just some signal of uh you know help help I'm, I'm having a hard time or whether it's actually that that system is doing something to help you solve that difficult speech perception problem is not clear yet i think um, and then of course as you know um there's this other hypothesis that maybe this network can help us reboot the language system after adult onset damage um and you're not finding evidence on this in your very careful review of uh, the literature from the last bunch of years. But I think, again, some of those studies may have been done in ways that um, were underpowered um, or not. <laughs> I don't know. At this oh, point, n- I just yeah, don't no, know. That I think <laughs> that
0: everything that's been done in aphasia neuroplasticity could, 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 could all be revisited. Like, you know, yeah. there's not there's nothing, there's no final word on anything in that field. Yeah.
1: So we're trying with Swati Kiran, we're trying to see if there's something there to that. Yeah.
0: Idea. So I know, so you guys, I know you have a, you have NIH funding to address that question of, you know, whether there might be plasticity of the MD network in post-stroke aphasia. Um, and uh, I know that work with people with aphasia takes many years. And so um, it's probably, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you don't know the answers yet, but um, yet. do you have anything that, that you can share with us yet about like what you've learned so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've had pilot data for a while um, that shows some responses, language-like responses in some of areas in individuals with aphasia. But um, I will not be convinced um, in the causal role of these regions until we can do something like um, a longitudinal investigation where we look at early responses in the MD areas um, during some, you know, acute or post-acute stage, and then are able to predict the degree of language recovery later. Like, I think without that kind of evidence, it's going to always be quite challenging to interpret the um, the responses in the MD regions to language. I think it's not impossible. Like, I think you can make some inferences, but I think the strongest inferences about, you know, this system maybe being repurposed partially to now help a domain which has suffered uh, due to damage, um, I think it's going to be challenging. Uh, And now, of course, everything is on hold and we're prioritizing just collecting um, large amounts of behavioral data on the target population. But are hoping to restart sometime later this year once vaccinations are in place. But
0: yeah, for sure. The answer is yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's it, I think it's just inherently really difficult for like the reasons that you said. I mean, with people with aphasia, you know, their experience of language is so different um, than those of us that did not have aphasia. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, when if you see if you did see increased multiple demand activity in a person with aphasia doing a language task you know, the first hypothesis always has to be, well, this task is much harder for them. Like, you know, it's going to be, it's going to have more cognitive demand. And is, is that like a, you know, does that really reflect reorganization or is it just reflecting the the fact that, you know, of the experimental situation? And obviously exactly. you've, thought, you've thought about so, all these things, yeah, but it's just a very hard right. question, isn't it?
1: That's right. Well, so one thing that might help is seeing whether um, the parts of the MD network that respond to language, whether they, eventually, or at some point, even cross-sectionally, become somewhat specialized for language. Like if you see a lower response to say a working memory task relative to what you would expect in that part of the brain, then maybe there is some repurposing going on. And like suddenly like this little bit is starting to do language. And the fact that the system is so incredibly flexible, and we know that these... Um, cells um in monkeys md systems they basically will attune to whatever current task demand is and maybe in humans they have the capacity to do this over longer time scales like if you constantly need extra resources to solve language um maybe you'll just repurpose some part of it to help you i don't know it's it's fascinating to think about how that kind of reorganization could happen but um we just yeah i think we just don't know yet
0: yeah, no, for sure. Well, I'm glad you guys are working on it. And I think that you and Swathi make a great team with your, you know, with your complementary perspectives.
1: Yeah, we like working together. <laughs> yeah,
0: cool. Um, and so you mentioned um, a few minutes ago something which um, I heard you say before, and I thought was really interesting, which was, you know, you kind of learned from your work with um, with John Duncan and Nancy Canwisher that essentially that there's like this really sharp distinction between the language network and the MD network and that and so that kind of took you away from that you know Chomskyan view or what well how you interpreted that Chomskyan view that that language is built on top of that kind of think of that kind of thinking and then you suggested that maybe language is built up on top of social thinking so can you kind of flesh that out a bit because yeah. um, I thought that was a really interesting idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, so that's an emerging hypothesis, and um, it seems to be emerging in a couple of different labs independently, so that's always encouraging that maybe there's something on the right track there. So it seems like if you look at regions that support, uh, brain regions that support social perception and cognition, a lot of them span lateral, frontal, and temporal cortices um, in some adjacent, but in an adult brain. And now historically, people who have studied these different capacities have been in different fields. So there's people who study face perception, there's people who study voice perception, there's people who study speech um, acoustics, um, there's people who study language, there's people who study theory of mind, and so on and so forth. Um, And um, I think this kind of fractionation of social cognition and perception across fields may have prevented people from seeing some generalizations and organizing principles of the mind and brain that may underlie social and linguistic development. Now, of course, a lot of people, there's a lot of reasons to think that language and social cognition are very tightly linked um, from development, from some um, uh, developmental disorders, um, from just... Generally, the fact that uh, a lot of language relies on kind of pragmatic reasoning about others' minds, and a lot of the signal is not literally the meaning of the words that you're saying. Um, and well, so... I mean, at a um,
0: more basic level, just, you know, some people think that language is for communication.
1: That's right. <laughs> although, <do. laughs> although,
0: although this is not a universally held position. but That's anyway. not
1: uncontroversial. That's right. right. But I certainly think it is for um it, design for communication. I think that's the optimization function. Anyway, so one possibility is that maybe in development and perhaps even evolutionarily, we start out with a bunch of cortex that's just attuned to social agents um, given that doing so is pretty critical to infant survival because we're born very, very useless. Human babies are born incredibly useless. Cute, but not useful. Um, And um, eventually, as we get more and more experience with social signals, which of course have the richness of auditory and visual and tactile information in them, maybe that socially attuned cortex fractionates into sub subnetworks sub-networks that specialize, you know, for processing different aspects of the social signal. Um, and so, of course, you know, the way to answer it would be to look over development. And the problem is, of course, that um, with methods like fMRI, it's really hard to scan kids at the ages when that... Um, you know, language development kind of happens at its most, which is like between, I don't know, six months and two years. It's kind of yeah. your hot spot. And um, it's not impossible. And, you know, people in Nancy Kempish's group and a few other groups are now scanning awake infants on task paradigms, mostly with naturalistic, like stimuli, of course, yeah. take the attention. But um, maybe we'll be able to tackle something like this. But for now, one thing we're trying in our lab is um, collecting neural responses to a very diverse set of, socially communicative relevant communicatively relevant signals um and trying approaches like those that sam norman higner developed in the study of the auditory cortex um of um trying to discover the underlying components um that maybe you know there are some axes organizing axes of this whole socially responsive cortex that people just haven't noticed because they've been focusing on different parts of it because it's just not all studied kind of in tandem. Right. So we'll no more in the years to come, but that's one effort that's currently ongoing.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I, I like that way of thinking about it. And I guess the lateralization might be end up being a big part of that story, right? I mean if the, it I sort of starts out as a fairly symmetrical social network and then and then one of the two hemispheres becomes more specialized for linguistic.
1: And one more for social other aspects concept. maybe. Yeah. Right. Like
0: that's different right. sort of channels. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Okay. So, um, we've kind of used up most of our time and like, I, I've maybe got to like maybe a third of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Cause you had, just have so many different lines of work. It's really, uh, it's really quite something. Um, but maybe we can chat again sometime and yeah. we could talk about some of those other lines of work. Yeah.
1: you're One of my favorite language researchers, so I'll chat with you anytime.
0: Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, let's say uh, I'm, I'm glad to report that no one's children or dogs yes. interrupted. And I had a um, dog
1: attempt. But, uh, you, you
0: had a dog attempt?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, my- <laughs> I got blogged by someone, so. Yeah.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate thank your time. You. And uh, it's great to talk to you. Um, yeah. yeah. All right, take care. And I'll, and I'll see you again sometime yeah. soon.
1: Sounds good. Thanks so much, Steven. That was fun.
0: All right, you too. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for our first episode. If you'd like to learn more about Ev's work, I've put some relevant links and notes on the podcast website, which is langneurosci.org podcast. I'd be grateful for any feedback. You can reach me at smwilsonau at gmail.com or smwilsonau on Twitter. Okay. Bye for now.